0: Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the um, second of our prestigious Edinburgh Gifford Lectures. My name is Mona Siddiqui, and I am Professor of Islamic and Interreligious Studies in the Divinity School here at Edinburgh University. I'm also a member of the Gifford Lectureships Committee. So I'm delighted to welcome once again our distinguished speaker, Professor Catherine Tanner, Marquand Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale Divinity School as she continues her series on the theme, Christianity and the New Spirit of Capitalism. This evening, Professor Tanner will deliver her second lecture entitled, Chained to the Past. The lecture this evening is being recorded, and the video will be shortly available on the university's Gifford Lecture webpages. Could I please ask you to either turn your phone off or put it onto silent, and I'll hand you over to Professor Tanner. Please join me in welcoming her.
1: The major way that finance-dominated capitalism organizes time so as to structure human subjectivity and hinder the critique of capitalism is by magnifying the significance of the past for present and future conduct. What present and future can hold is rigidly and comprehensively determined by a past decision, whether one's own or someone else's concerning what's to come. The past meets one as a personally obligating command, or order, proscribing present and future conduct in an unrelenting way that permits no breaks or ruptures. Present and future future are captured by the past, captive to it. The manner in which profits are generated through debt in finance-dominated capitalism is one way this kind of temporal effect on human subjectivity is brought about. Debt is increasingly used by cash-strapped individuals to make up for what finance-dominated corporations and governments no longer provide for them, a living wage on the one hand, and guarantees of education and more than simple survival in times of trouble on the other. One's paycheck routinely runs out before the end of the month, requiring one to amass credit card debt or to take out payday loans at exorbitant rates to make ends meet. The government no longer provides you with an education, but it best makes it easier for you to take out the loans to pay for it, and so on. The the effects of this sort of forced debt to meet basic needs, often in circumstances of hardship, are constrictive rather than expansive of future possibility, extractive of already existing value rather than productive of new value. This sort of debt simply chains individuals in highly restrictive ways to the past in which they assumed it. And all this, I'll suggest in what follows, is not inadvertent, but a deliberate mechanism of profit generation through debt under finance-dominated capitalism. Much the same temporal effects on human subjectivity come about by way of workplace restructuring to meet stock market demands for maximum profitability at the lowest possible cost. Management techniques that accord with concerns to increase shareholder value the inexorability of a past decision becomes as we'll see the way to get the most out of the few workers one retains on payroll and the way to force other companies working at your behest to squeeze their workers dry by agreeing to take out a loan or perform a task for one's employer one promises to abide by and therefore assumes personal responsibility for, f- for fulfilling an expectation regarding future conduct that that increasingly takes on the character of an inexorable demand. Short of simple exit by declaring bankruptcy or quitting one's job, continuing on the way set by a prior decision to which one has committed oneself by accepting employment, say, means working for a future in strict conformity with a past decision regarding it. Every present is past preoccupied, And nothing more is to be expected in the future than what the past has already laid down in the form of anticipation. One is bound in the present by a memory of the promised future, so to speak, by a future target set in the past, whether that target takes the form of eventual loan repayment or a work performance benchmark, to be honored in one's conduct at every moment, come what may, whatever else the future may bring. Past decisions have an inexorable quality here in part because once once signed on to, they are unalterable and inflexible, subject to no fundamental renegotiation of their terms due to unforeseen contingencies in the lives of borrowers or workers. Indeed, making the decision to sign on to the initial terms often simply means assuming responsibility oneself for managing all future contingencies in line with that final objective one initially agreed to. Failing to manage one's life with all its risks and perils in ways that allow one, for example, to pay off one's debts, therefore means paying the price oneself. One's car is repossessed, one's house is foreclosed upon, with nothing to show for all those prior payments, perhaps far in excess because of high interest rates of the car or home's actual present value. Fixing the objective, fixing the objective without, assume, uh, without assuming responsibility for the means is typically part of the take-it-or-leave-it quality of the demanding past in finance-dominated capitalism. Do whatever it takes to meet the specified target. How one gets there is your business, as long as the target itself, which remains essentially intact and unaltered, is met within the time allowed. The work team charged with designing a new product line by February is therefore free to manage itself as is the subcontractor required by a lead company to deliver X number of goods of the specified quality at time t. The responsibility for such matters is simply handed over by the company to others. Because they are self-managing in responding to company demands, whatever eventualities impede satisfactory completion of company orders are laid at the feet of a company's workers or subcontractors themselves with highly moralizing effects. Expectations of future performance in this way become unsparing and unforgiving. Failures to meet previously set targets, whether the problems were foreseeable or not, whether under worker control or not, are treated as equally punishable offenses meriting outright dismissal or loss of any future contract for work. The past also becomes an inexorable demand under finance-dominated capitalism in that past targets for future performance often seem nearly impossible to meet, and therefore have a highly constrictive effect on possibilities for present and future conduct. Everything else has to be sacrificed to meeting them. Demands of the past make on the future tend to become very difficult to meet, in part because of a mismatch between this way of structuring time and others equally typical of finance-dominated capitalism. Even as present and future conduct is bound by past decision, one finds oneself in an extremely volatile environment that makes anticipations of the future highly unreliable. One commits oneself to continuous mortgage payments, say, month after month for the next 30 years at the same time as work becomes increasingly precarious, as the likelihood of being laid off at some point in one's working life or holding merely contingent, part-time, or on-call employment at irregular weekly or monthly wages, for most of it, increases." Similarly, workers are chained to the past even as their employers are freed from it, retaining the right to revoke at will the initial decision to hire them, as in the United States, altering time schedules and shifting the targets that put demands on workers' times to reflect unanticipated changes in market conditions and so on. What makes meeting a target difficult, having to manage constantly changing conditions over the course of time necessary to bring a product or service to market, becomes the responsibility of the workers. At least temporarily, inflexible targets are required to bring any product or service to market. The costs of managing the constantly changing conditions under which those inflexible targets are pursued become the responsibilities of others, a self-managing workforce or subcontractor. The difficulties faced by workers in managing volatility here are not simply the flip side of their being successfully avoided by others. The past refusing culture of liquidity, otherwise typical of finance-dominated capitalism, has itself the direct effect of chaining workers more thoroughly to the past in production processes. Finance-dominated capitalism is a culture of liquidity, you could say, in that most profit-generating mechanisms within it are predicated upon the refusal of constraint from past decision. Institutional mechanisms are put in place that allow all past commitments to be constantly revisited and revised. By way of secondary markets like stock exchanges, any past decision to commit funds can be cashed out whenever one likes in the search for more profitable investment opportunities. Corporations disciplined by stockholder demands for maximum profitability also typically try to achieve achieve greater profitability by breaking constraints on production posed (laughs) by sunk costs. Using what are usually called post fordist techniques of lean and just-in-time production to maximize profit, corporations avoid all immobile capital expenditures that would tie their hands regarding future production whether that immobile capital takes the form of stockpiles of components or machines that can only make one thing or warehouses full of finished product awaiting customer orders. What they have already produced or already purchased by way of equipment no longer limits the capacity of companies to respond to changes in consumer demand. They have produced only as much as is necessary to meet current orders and are therefore not faced with the dismal prospect of trying to sell more of what people no longer want to buy. And the machines they have can be retooled to produce new product lines, so as to capture untapped markets or respond to changes in consumer sentiment. Nothing sits around and goes to waste, remaining unused or or unsold for any length of time. And the same machines can constantly churn out product of one sort or another, switching product lines as necessary. These same post fordist techniques for maximum utilization of investment typically enforce human capital nobility. What they ask of machines, they also ask of people. For example, rather than being constrained in what they can produce in future by past decisions to hire people with a single specialty or competence, companies require workers to be able to perform a multitude of tasks Tasks that can be varied at will depending on changing production requirements. Thus, workers need to know not simply how to work with a specific machine, but how to prov- to provide... Excuse me, how to perform preventative maintenance on it, how to change its, component, its components to alter its productive capacities, and how to use it just as efficiently for those newly enabled purposes. The multitasking of machines... Is matched by the multitasking of workers. While all these post-fordist techniques prevent a company's productive capacities from being hemmed in by past investment decisions, they have the opposite effect on workers due to the extremely tight flow in the production process they bring about. Compared with earlier Fordist—that's uh, reference to Henry Ford—compared to, compared to earlier assembly line production. More intensive exertion is now required from workers because the lack of stockpiles removes all slack from the production process, thereby eliminating, in principle, all idle or downtime. By way of computerized technologies that match orders to production in real time and regulate parts of the production process accordingly, bottlenecks formed by the under- or overproduction of components and final product no longer occur to interrupt production flow, either in-house or on the way to customers. Finished products, for example, come into the warehouse as soon as they are to go out, requiring a constant flow of work from those who transport stock. Workers are in constant movement because the product is. And when they're at work, they're always working. The same computerized technologies that match production to customer orders in real time mean workers can be called in only when needed in forms of zero-hour zero, contract, uh, zero hour contracts. Moreover, in contrast to earlier forms of production line assembly where slacking off could be hidden, any lapse in the constant exertion required by tight flow in the production process is immediately evident to everybody. Because the flow has no slack in it, flow is fragile and unforgiving of failures in compliance. One misstep, and the whole line stops. In all these ways, the past, starting with the initial customer order and proceeding through all the production stages prior to the one you were responsible for, takes on the character of a continuously exercised, inescapable, and unrelenting pressure. Put more simply and more generally to cover all sorts of work and not simply assembly line production and distribution flows, One can say that in finance-dominated capitalism, the setting of nearly impossible demands is an intentional strategy for extracting the greatest possible effort from workers. Pressure from shareholders for maximum profitability means making do with less. Payrolls are cut to the bone to reduce costs as much as possible. And that means fewer workers are now required to perform the work that a far greater number of them did before. <clears throat> stock market pr- r- pressures for increasing returns on invest but, pr- sorry, but, but, <laughs> yeah, but stock market pressures for increasing returns on investment, but let me start again, <laughs> but under stock market pressures for increasing returns on investment, companies also typically set ever more difficult tasks for their employees to force greater productivity and performance. They're more efficient use of time. They're doing more at a quicker pace. What workers are asked to do becomes nearly, in short, becomes nearly impossible to achieve unless they work constantly and with enormous intensity. Setting nearly impossible demands is also a typical mechanism for cost companies and companies that reorganize their operations using a so-called core periphery model. The most profitable parts, the core parts of the business, are retained in-house, while the least profitable ones are outsourced or made the responsibility of subcontractors so as to form a periphery around the lead company purchasing their services or production inputs. The design and marketing teams, the front office pulling in the deals, are the ones adding the most value and responsible most directly for making all the money. They're to be retained as company employees. The janitors and maintenance staff, along with those performing data entry and providing payroll services, all workers performing inessential functions, so-called inessential functions, are mere costs of production or service provision to be outsourced or employed by other companies even if they work in-house. Indeed, every aspect of production between design and sale, the actual assembly of all the parts, every function that enables the front office deal-making, is to be sub- subcontract or subcontracted or outsourced. All these subsidiary products and services that contribute to the lead company's own eventual provision of a product or service, whether it be an apple computer or a bond issue, still have to be paid for, but their costs have now been minimized. They cost far less than they would have if the work had been done by the company's own employees. This is simply a function of market competition. All the many companies capable of providing what the lead company now buys compete with one another for its business, therefore driving down prices. If janitors were paid in-house, their pay would, for a variety of reasons, be far higher than if they were supplied by other companies on the open market. Given the number of companies competing for its business, the lead company can easily bargain down the price for those services. Indeed, pressured by shareholders for maximum profitability, companies can, more or less easily, depending on their market share, set a take-it-or-leave-it rock-bottom price beyond which they refuse to budge. The profit margins on these sub-firms are typically quite low in any case. That's in great part why direct responsibility for providing their products and services has been shed by the lead company. But now those profit margins are are forced even lower by lead company price demands to a near breaking point level, if at all possible, beyond which lies simple failure to return any profit at all. Besides forcing lower the wages of employees of subcontractors, employees are often paid below minimum wage. I'm thinking in the United States here primarily, but the near impossible price demands made by lead companies, put pressure on subcontractors to hire the minimum number of workers and to work them as hard as possible, often in violation of labor laws. For example, employees may routinely be be forced to work before and after their their official shifts without pay. Pressured to reduce payroll costs, subcontractors may also employ the same core periphery cost cutting strategies of the lead companies. They may become, for example, merely the brand organizers for collections, say, of smaller uh, cleaning outfits and in that way increase their own profit margins by squeezing those of their franchisees. Profits are in this this way forced ever lower as one proceeds down the resulting nested chain of suppliers. The closer to the lead company, the greater the profit margins with the lead company itself making an outsized return on investment. And as the profit margins shrink along the chain, responding to initial lead company demands, the greater the pressure put on workers to make do with less and to work ever harder. While the lead company itself and its direct suppliers make sufficient profits to be able to afford, more, to, afford to hire more employees and work them less intensely, it's simply p- part of this business model not to do so. The target of maximum profit, profitabilities set by the stock market forbids it. In this way, nearly impossible demands for maximum exertion from workers come to bridge the whole supply chain from top to bottom. The setting of nearly impossible demands for profit-generating purposes is also typical of the way debt functions in finance-dominated capitalism one might think loans would be profitable only when they have a good chance of being paid off. Loans, one might think, are made in order to be repaid, with profits generated by way of the difference between the interest payments due to the creditor over time and the costs they had in generating the funds that they loaned. If profits are primarily predicated on repayment, one wouldn't want to stretch the borrower's sources of income so far through indebtedness as to jeopardize that repayment and one would loan with the expectation that borrowed funds would prove profitable to the borrower, since those profits might prove the prime source of the funds used to pay back the loan. In conditions of finance-dominated capitalism, to the contrary, difficulty in meeting the demand to pay them off seems a major part of their point. Indeed, maximum difficulty pushing to the edge of borrower insolvency becomes something of an ideal. This is in part because profit is generated not by way of the slow trickle of interest and principal payments by borrowers to loan originators, but by repackaging such loans into bonds for immediate sale to other investors. The higher the interest rate paid to investors in such bonds, the greater their attractiveness to them. And this requires the interest rates on the original loans that are repackaged to be as high as possible near but not tipping over into what's beyond borrowers' ability to pay. Financially strapped borrowers with low credit, credit scores become in this way prime lending targets. They're charged higher interest, interest rates. They can be charged higher interest rates along with hefty fees to compensate for greater default risk. Their actual defaulting would not be a good thing, at least if it happened quickly across the board in ways that might spook investors in these bonds. To delay the inevitable, even more money can be lent to persons at risk of defaulting, say beyond the value of any collateral at the time of the initial loan so that the extra is itself available to pay the interest on the loan until it runs out. And when those extra funds do evaporate, the initial loan can be rolled over, thereby adding to one's original indebtedness. The second-hand car one bought with borrowed money at high interest rates breaks down. One can't get to work without it, and absent a paycheck, one is in jeopardy of defaulting on the payments still owed on it. One takes out an even bigger loan at even higher interest rates to pay off the first loan and purchase another car, and so on. (laughs) Or one is unable to make ends meet at the end of the month on one's meager salary as the employee of a cleaning company franchise. And therefore, one takes out a payday loan at sky-high interest rates. But if one struggled to make ends meet without a loan, that effort becomes even more difficult with loan payments to be made on top of one's regular expenses for for food and housing, requiring a new loan of a larger amount at perhaps even higher interest rates. And so it goes. Indefinite extension of indebtedness until eventual default. At some point, the diversion of funds that might otherwise be used for food and shelter from people of limited means reaches its limit in default. Indefinite extension with that ultimate end being chained to one's debt until defeated by it seems endemic to the primary mechanism of profit profit generation here. Rather than expanding possibilities for profit on the part of borrowers, as one primary avenue for generating revenues to pay back loans, debt here, as elsewhere in finance-dominated capitalism, has a contractive and expropriating effect. Debt means poor people find it harder rather than easier to live well. Clearly, payday loans and loans for consumption purposes generally, when assumed by cash-strapped borrowers, don't lend a hand out of poverty but keep people in it money that could have been used to pay for food and housing now goes to service a debt whose high interest rate prevents one from ever repaying. Just that much less in the amount equal to to what's demanded for debt servicing remains available for essential expenses, forcing extremes of self-management from the poor in the effort to cope with increasing extremes of austerity demanded by growing debt. The assumption of debt by government has the same contractive and constricting effects, making the past a dead weight rather than opening to a future beyond it. Revenues from taxation are designed to enable government service provision in the form of parks and infrastructure construction, educational opportunities, and programs to ensure the well-being of citizens. Generating revenue from debt on the open market has the opposite effect especially when such debt is used to cover shortfalls in tax revenues. Less money is available for service provision, and more money is diverted to debt servicing. Government service provision has to contract contract by an amount equal to that required for debt servicing, rather than being helped to expand by way of it. This contraction of service provision is viewed by the community of creditors as a salutary development in any case, whatever the economic conditions, insofar as it forces government efficiencies via cost-cutting. Fewer government employees and redundant agencies, indeed less service provision altogether. Pressured by the debt they have assumed in hard times, governments are to be run more productively, which reassures their creditors about their likely solvency in future and continued ability to make payments on their bonds only efficiently run governments, which means governments run like finance-dominated corporations so as to cut costs of the bone are deemed credit worthy on the open market. Indeed, the model here is the way companies are forced into efficiencies by difficulty in servicing debt. When companies are taken over by investors trying to make money through the purchase and sale of them, those companies are saddled with the debt used to purchase them, as I described in the first lecture. And that puts immediate pressure on their revenue streams. Prior to being taken over by, say, a private equity firm that borrowed money to purchase it using the company itself as collateral, the company may have typically sold enough to cover costs of production, meet employee payrolls, and turn a profit. Now, because it has to service the debt used to acquire it, revenues are quite possibly no longer sufficient for such purposes. The company can try to increase revenues dramatically, but that's difficult to do and takes time. The quick fix is to cut costs, most easily by way of company employees, by shedding them and lowering the pay and benefits of the ones that remain. In this way, employees are expropriated in order to pay company creditors. Finally, the demands of the past are inexorable here, whether by way of debt or workplace reorganization In that the whole of life is consumed in the attempt to meet them. The whole of life must be dedicated to their service just because they are so difficult to meet otherwise. Debt, when it's forced by need and not simply a matter of convenience, always has this disciplining effect on the whole of life, inclusive of both work and leisure. Every other decision in one's life, no matter how small, is affected. Should I really have this expensive cup of coffee or buy this brand-name jumper for my child, given the growing monthly monthly minimum payment on my credit card? One has promised to organize the whole of one's life as both a worker and consumer to meet the demands of debt. Every aspect of one's life is potentially relevant to one's ability to service it and will, in fact, become so relevant the more difficult it is to make the payments on that debt. But work demands tend to become just as life-consuming as debt under finance-dominated forms of workplace reorganization. Because demands set in the past for future performance are so difficult to meet, and because there's no downtime at work that could be used to catch up on work that one has fallen behind on, work tends to bleed into time off. One spends longer hours at work trying to complete tasks on time, it's after hours, one should be home at, uh, at home with one's kids, but one stays at work until the wee hours of the morning in an attempt to meet a deadline. And time away from the office on nights and weekends is increasingly dedicated to completing what simply couldn't be finished at work, try as hard as one might. The extreme pressures of past demands on future performance in this way come to colonize every waking moment. Now, given, uh, I hope I've shown, generally unfortunate character of this temporal structuring of human subjectivity within finance-dominated capitalism, how might one disrupt it? One might, with uh, Michel Foucault, try to disrupt it by scanning the historical record for alternative models of human subjectivity that differ from it and thereby contest contest the historical inevitability of this particular way of structuring human relations to the past. Such alternative models of subjectivity could put this one in its place and show it to be merely a contingent historical development. If viable now, if supported by forms of community life extending into the present, those alternative forms of subjectivity could in fact provide potential avenues for active resistance to finance-dominated capitalism in the present. In the rest of my time today, I'll propose uh, <coughs> that certain Christian surprise, surprise, that certain Christian ways of structuring the temporal dimensions of human subjectivity stand out in this regard. They don't just differ from it, but pose the starkest possible contrast with the temporal structuring of human subjectivity I've just outlined. Rather than determining a future target, the past is problematized, and often radically so. One is counseled simply to repudiate it. One is not to be the one uh, one was before, the sort of person one committed oneself to being or becoming in the past. Moreover, in contrast to expectations of some seamless way from here to there, from past target to future realization, for a variety of religious reasons, sharp discontinuities are properly thought to break the hold of the past on present and future conduct. This may be partly a function of the disreputable character of the past. Past and future conduct can't be joined in any continuous fashion, just to to the degree the past is what is to be left behind. But even when past targets remain, in some sense, normative for future conduct, something about that target prevents expectation of continuous progress towards it, often requiring something of a discontinuous leap across a divide. The past, of course, is sometimes, sometimes considered by Christians to be something of great value, indeed taken to represent an ideal to which present and future conduct are to conform. Where one has been, but is no longer, determines where one is going. Being saved means returning to a lost origin, recovering the ideal form of oneself as God originally knew it, or the state of Adam and Eve's conformity with God's will before the fall. Who one was, whether in God or proleptically in Adam and Eve, is who one is to become again with God's help, and one is to exert oneself to the utmost now, by way of God's grace, to bring one's life in its entirety back into line with that lost ideal past. Much of this is simply a platonic legacy following in Christian form the past preoccupations of a platonic model for structuring human subjectivity. There exists an ideal for human life to be imitated now that was once enjoyed to the full and that one can one day return to. One lived the life of the gods before falling to earth, either literally or figuratively, and the struggle now is to return to the life one once knew. Such a platonic model does bring with it a certain suspicion of the past and a disjunctive temporality that breaks continuity with the future, even though that future has the form of the past. All that one has been since that time of origin all the commitments to worldly matters that have made one what one is since the fall are to be repudiated. There might exist a continuous ladder back to the past, made possible, say, by the way ideal forms are variously manifest in the material world. One moves by stages, for Plato himself, from beautiful boys to beautiful ideas, but at some point one jumps suddenly, out of this whole realm of embodied preoccupations into a different one, an intelligible world where one contemplates pure forms themselves. Depending on the state into which one has fallen and the seriousness of the impediments it presents for return, no perfectly continuous process of return might be possible, requiring divine intervention to bring future into line with the past. Simple ignorance of origins, for example, might prevent return apart from a saving knowledge brought to the material world from without, as in Gnosticism. Or the state of the light within material existence might be so fragmented, so dissipated, as to obstruct all efforts to collect itself without a new infusion of light from beyond, as in some Christian forms of Manichaeism. But the close association of ideal self with divinity within a Platonic model tends to mean that what one was is never fully lost, and that therefore the way back to origins is in principle and most fundamentally a matter of continuous progress. One doesn't simply exist in a divine state originally. (coughs) One has a divine nature. Because divinity constitutes one's essential identity, it can't be lost even in one's fallen state. For all the corruption of character that may have prompted the fall or that may ensue once fallen, one remains fundamentally what what one was before, one's divine self, but now in a very bad situation, hostile circumstances. When one repudiates what one has become since the fall, one therefore isn't repudiating oneself, certainly not in any wholesale way, but the conditions under which one presently exists in their unwholesome effects on one. Remaining divine in some significant sense, one retains moreover the means for return to a state in which one's divinity will be fully manifest and free from taint. What one is to become, in other words, builds on what one remains. Salvation often indeed suggests nothing more than simple purification from foreign influences, the stripping away of external accretions that enable one to become more fully what one already essentially is to effect a kind of consolidation of who one has always truly been. Bringing one's present and future into strict alignment with one's past self, salvation means one's past self now protected from harm, delivered from threat. The Christian affirmation of the merely created, non-divine nature of humans Means that if humans enjoyed some sort of perfect unity with God's intentions for them before their creation or at their first creation in paradise, what they enjoyed then can be completely lost. The perfection that was once theirs was not theirs by nature, but accrued to them by virtue of that very unity with God. If, this, if sin breaks that relationship with God, <coughs> perfection can simply be replaced by total corruption made to exist in unity with God. Humans without God have their lives turned upside down. They become the opposite of what they should be. If they were once light in and through God's light, they now find themselves in total darkness. Salvation then means the complete repudiation of what one has become through sin. What has organized one's whole life and it's turning away from God is now to be forfeited. One must simply renounce what one has become by turning away from that past of sin and becoming something entirely new. Humans once lost in their complete corruption without God now found with God because of what Christ accomplished to their unsurpassable benefit. Rather than being some continuous process, The passage from one state to another is like a passage through death. One dies to one's old self, an old self whose life amounted to a kind of death, in order to be born again into another life. Such a rebirth means no resuscitation of a corpse, but entrance into an entirely new manner of human existence, enlivened by God's own life. Such a passage is thereby enabled by nothing that remains the creature's own under conditions of sin, but comes by grace alone, the grace of Christ who reconciles, who brings back into unity with God what has been separated from God to its absolute absolute detriment. The conversion or turning away in two at issue here is a kind of participation in Christ's own death and resurrection. A dying to the world and rising with him and in its extremity is akin to one's own death and resurrection to come. One's life of sin can no more contribute to one's new life to come than can one's body rotting away in the grave to one's resurrection. The life force completely lost by way of one's own death, the utter corruption of the grave, will be made up for by the empowering spirit of God's own life to come. Where the passage in question might be likened to the release or cancellation of an enslaving debt, one that's otherwise impossible to remit by one's own resources. Sin can itself be considered a sort of unpaid debt in that one has failed to make good on what God has provided for one, defaulted on the obligation to act in accord with God's good intentions for one in ways that can no longer be remedied through one's own efforts, every such attempt, simply, simply bringing one into greater debt debt because of one's fundamental corruption. Sin in this way eventuates in a kind of debt slavery, imprisoning one within the debt that sin itself, making it impossible to repay, a form of unrelenting bondage. The transition out of death is consequently quite abrupt. No gradual repayment from within prison walls brings about one's release from its prison. That release comes suddenly from unexpected quarters in ways that cancel your own need to pay. Christ becomes the strange currency or treasure that allows one now to make good on one's obligations to God. And in that way, Christ breaks one's bondage to sin. The fact of such serious gaps in the passage from old life to new is made clear in peculiar forms of Christian self-narration, retrospective ones. What's to come cannot be told prospectively, that is, looking forward from the standpoint of the past and present towards the future to come. Because of the unexpected twists and turns to come, there's no way to get from here to there, starting from the past and making it the basis for a projection about what the future will hold. Only from the standpoint of an otherwise unanticipated outcome can one look back and retell the story of one's life in ways that make sense of such an outcome by interjecting, where necessary, elements of complete surprise. Now that I know how I've ended up, saved from sin, I can see how, unbeknownst to me and often contrary to my own intentions, God was working on my behalf to bring me where I could otherwise not have brought myself. Augustine's confessions would be the model here. Such a narrative form, looking back at the past from the the future that has now arrived, allows that future to be an unanticipated one from the standpoint of the past. How could someone so sunk in sin, as Augustine was, have been expected to end up where he did? A bishop. Assuming bishops are not very sinful. Uh, The radical nature of the change seems very much like the creation from nothing outlined in the last books of the Confessions. The interpretive process here from future to past in order to make sense of the future's unexpected character is similar to typological readings of God's working over the whole of salvation history as that spans both Old and New Testaments. And here I've been influenced by a recent book by Richard Hayes, I think called Looking Backwards, Backwards Reading, something like that. Uh, events recounted in the Old Testament can be seen to refer to events in Christ's life, but only after the latter events have happened and from their standpoint. Such a retrospective reading is necessary because the later events follow the pattern or form of the earlier ones in highly unexpected ways that could not be anticipated beforehand. No one could have predicted, for example that a man identified with God would come to stand in the place of temple practices, doing what they were originally designed to do and in that way repeating their form, removing impediments to Israel's conformity with God's laws, but in an entirely novel way, through the shedding of his own blood rather than animal sacrifice. Such a narrative practice, reading backwards from later to earlier, can obviously be used to smooth over over the gaps between old and new by reading the later into the earlier in ways that evacuate Israel's past of any independent significance. On that way of looking at things, this is what the earlier narratives about ancient Israelite practice always meant or referred to. Their Christian sense is their only significance, simply replacing any sense they might have had before. The surprise of what's to come would thereby be lost. What happened before now becomes something like a transparent prediction of future events. The future simply conforms to the past, true sense. And this is a kind of very supersessionist way of doing backwards reading that I'm trying to avoid. But the need for retrospective reading is often to the contrary, predicated upon a disjunction between earlier and later that allows earlier events to have their own distinctive significance. It's not simply that earlier stories take on a new, unexpected significance in light of what happened in Christ's life later on. The meaningfulness of those later events in Christ's life also depends on the distinctive sense of earlier events in their own time. However surprising it might be, the New Testament identification of Jesus with bread from heaven, for example, makes little sense apart from a prior understanding of what mana meant within the story of Israel's escape from Egypt. That later identification with Christ gains much of its meaning from past events in virtue of their already having happened in the particular way that they did. Those past events have their own significance within their own storied context and for that reason need not point in and of themselves to anything more to come. In the manner in which God's people were fed in the desert, God may have had Christ in mind. That surprising new twist to come in God's ongoing efforts to remain faithful to Israel. But that's no reason to assume these later, those later events were somehow contained prospectively in it in ways that would have been evident to earlier authors of such stories or their audiences. The same God working in similarly surprising ways God works in highly surprising ways in the Old Testament too, establishes continuity between Jesus and the bread that fed the Israelites as they wandered in the desert so that the significance of bread in that earlier story is freed up, one might say, from the burden of having to establish such continuity itself. Because it's God who works in surprising ways to bridge the gap between earlier and later the lack of any obvious internal continuity of meaning between the past and what's to come can be quite extreme without jeopardizing the intelligibility of the story being told. Similarities of formal pattern may remain while the import of that recurrence radically shifts. Thus, Isaac's willingness to be slaughtered means the end of child sacrifice in Israel, while Christ's willingness to die brings temple sacrifice itself to an end for Christians. There is continuity here, but continuity that includes radical disjunction. Indeed, it's not unusual for Christians to claim that Christ recapitulates the patterns of prior history by reversing them. The story of Adam is retold in Christ, but with perfect obedience taking the place of the former's utter sin. Ways of making a coherent narrative out of radically disjunctive pasts and futures are also typical in Christian forms of self-narration. Split into two by conversion, Christian self-narration obviously cannot amount to a tale of an incrementally cumulative career in which what's to come builds in continuous, predictable fashion on what precedes it. Marked as it is by conversion, the coherence of Christian character cannot be narrated in terms of ongoing conformity, to the same fundamental choice of oneself from the start of one's life to its finish. If Christians have a character, it's from any normal point of view a character-destroying character, a character structured, that is, to expect and promote its own fundamental revision. The fundamental choices of oneself that organized my life before are no longer to organize it a very odd sort of character then, but a structured, organized character nonetheless. One's manner of relating to oneself may not take the form of a cumulative career in habitual conformity to a single established character over the course of one's lifetime. But neither, in virtue of that fact, need one's manner of relating to oneself, past and present, break apart into simple incoherence. For all the discontinuity... My life was lost to God apart from Christ and now regained in him. My past self remains indelible now in the form of my having been it. Neither simply continuous nor simply discontinuous with who who I am now, it will ever be my denied identity. It remains my past, myself in the form of my ongoing disidentification with it, the past that I constantly struggle against. Conversion is in this way never over. It's not a one-time event one leaves behind. It affects no simple break with the past, now forgotten, but means entering into an extended state of break, that's Foucault's term, whereby one constantly turns away from what remains a force in one's life. This conversion story, in which my past continues to figure, becomes, in other words, the story of my whole life. It narrates not simply an important moment in which my life changed course, but turns into my whole life story, spanning, spanning every one of its moments. Indeed, I'm even now, and sure the eschaton, ever will be that sinner I was then, despite my being united again with God in Christ. What's radically different, the character of my relationship in the past, apart from Christ, and now with him, permits my remaining much as I was, until that day when I finally become, God, become holy, becoming, when I finally become holy as God is holy, united to Christ, I have my righteousness in Christ, in virtue simply of what He is, until christ's own righteousness transforms my humanity into the image and likeness of His, and I am no longer in heaven, the sinner I was except in memory. Because the sin from which I'm converted remains, even as I'm propelled out of bondage to it by way of a new relationship with God in Christ, the state of grace to which I'm converted initiates no cumulative process either of simple incremental improvement. The better I am by way of the effects of grace upon me, the more serious my continued failings become, the farther, the farther I have to fall in my ongoing moral imperfection. I continue to confess my sin, not simply because I haven't yet achieved enough in the effort to lead a reformed life, but as a reminder of the simple sinner, I remain apart from Christ in recognition of my utter dependence upon Christ for all that I am that's good. Conversion does not mean, then, being set on a new path oneself, absent one's former sins, destroyed in Christ, being left with a now clean blank slate to make the most of to make the most of oneself through one's own renewed efforts to conform one's will with God. One's converted converted self does not, in other words, itself amount to a past to which one's future is chained in impossible expectation of perfection. It doesn't, and here I'm following the elder Tom Torrance's early work, it doesn't, create for the believer a life of obligation which must be persistently fulfilled in the anxious effort to preserve the purity of one's initial converted state at baptism, for example. One's baptism does not mean one's former sins are washed away so as to be put under the obligation of leading a blameless life thereafter. The grace of Christ in this way receding behind the demand to fulfill the tasks which baptism imposes. Such a demand would always be threatened by lapses into sin after baptism, requiring constant self-vigilance from the believer in either the futile attempt to prevent such lapses altogether or to atone for them subsequently. Post-baptismal sin would in this way bring one once again into God's debt, a debt to be forgiven by way of heartfelt confession and repentance or to be remitted by virtue of one's compensatory future good deeds. The salvation that Christ brings would become in this way a kind of advance on what one is eventually to pay for oneself through holy living. God would become one's creditor again in Christ, loaning salvation on the expectation of being paid back by the good works that Christ makes possible. But what most fundamentally disrupts the idea that one's grace state poses an impossible demand on future conduct is the fact that what one is indeed asked to achieve is already one's own in Christ. Living in Christ, one is righteous because of Christ's righteousness, whatever the state of one's own. While certainly to be struggled against, post-baptismal sin is also something to be expected. One is saved while a sinner still Post-baptismal sin, like the sin that came before it, thereby loses its power to threaten salvation that comes by way of life in Christ. One is united to Christ and thereby saved whatever the degree of one's continuing sinfulness and despite sin's ongoing presence in one's life. What God asks of us from the beginning may well be impossible. Perfect conformity with God's own will One cannot perhaps hope to imitate the righteousness of God in our deeds by way of the created goods that constitute simply human life, but only by way of God's own spirit empowering their performance. Radical discontinuity may in that way exist between what we are given in the beginning and what we are to achieve in the end. But God is the one who bridges the difference. God will supply the means to take us from the future target set for us in the past to its eventual realization. Not just before baptism, but after. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Catherine. Um, As you were speaking, I was thinking about all the little nuggets. Um, One of them could be an essay title. Being saved is purification from foreign influences. Discuss. I saw reflections of, I'm sure, many of our lives in the trappings of debt in the first part of your lecture, um, which you end on the de- demands of debt. I started thinking how easy it is to know how negative the influence of debt is on your life, and yet still seek it to in the pursuit of a of, of a better life. And then maybe somebody in this lecture room can write a book on one of your other phrases, The Destruction of Organised Character. I can see that turning into a book. Uh, so thank you for all that. Thank you.
2: I have to say my ignorance is, is, is exceeded only by the size of well, my head or something. So this is a, a, two very stupid questions, no doubt. But it seemed to me in your the earlier part of your lecture this evening, Professor, you... You, you didn't seem to make any allowance for the possibility that all this grinding down of the poor, uh, on whom the whole structure apparently depends, would actually destroy them. And uh, are they are the fat cats at the top not actually destroying the the substructure that that uh, maintains them? And and uh, and if not, if not, why not? And the other thing that struck me is. Uh, that the whole system seems to depend on the fat cats never, ever, ever repenting. And that seems to me, a, a, well, maybe it's true, but it seems to me a sad um, possibility.
1: Okay, thank you. I think you to... oh, thanks for that. Um... Yeah, I mean I'm tempted to respond to the first part of your question by saying the poor will always be with us. So there will always be somebody available to exploit. Um uh, somewhat facetious, I suppose. But, um <clears throat> not sure I have a further <laughs> answer to that question, but uh but yeah, I'm I'm not suggesting that uh, um you know profits can only be made Within this particular organization, way of organizing capitalism via exploitation of poor people. I think there are ways of easily exploiting poor people, but you can. uh, I was basically suggesting that there's um, certain form of exploitation that's going up uh, from the top to the bottom. So even very well remunerated, well paid. Say corporate staff are also being subject to the same kinds of uh, pressures that I'm talking about, just with different consequences for them. I mean, they they still, you know, get a very large paycheck. But there's there yeah, it's not just the lowest uh, levels of society that are being exploited by these means. There there's an, there's a form of exploitation that's that's running throughout the whole thing to different degrees. Um the other point that you were making, yeah, I mean I'm <clears throat> I'm not ex- I mean I'm talking about conversion here and conversion yes involves repentance so I'm not I'm I'm counseling that. <laughs> so uh if those at the top would care to repent, that sounds fine. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think uh I'm I'm basically saying that that's the primary Christian task to be in this, what uh, for Foucault I was calling the state a break, you know, which involves, yeah, a conversion from uh, something one shouldn't be doing to something one should be doing. And that that's uh, something that all Christians are called to do, not just those at the top. There's a reason to do it, whatever your life circumstances.
3: Wonder if you could say you've spoken about the importance of divine action through grace to break a self's identity as either productive or indebted. Is there a place here for recovering the language of divine election, and how can this undo that anxious state of the subject that's formed by the teaching of double predestination that Faber traces? Right, caught between fatalism and mm. a kind of resigned well, act- I'm not activism.
1: Double predestination here, so that always helps. <laughs> you know, to be anxious because. God wants to save you. <laughs> don't worry. Uh, yeah, but that's not obvious what the account of salvation is here. But yeah, I don't, I don't believe in double predestination. No, of course, but, yes, but... The
3: language of election you would want to use in uh, terms of this divine action?
1: Sure. Yeah, but, but you have a further point behind that? I mean, what if I were to use that language? What would that do? Or what would be the significance of that?
3: I suppose it would help. You mentioned, I mean, the moralizing or demoralizing effect of, of one's choice to to um, enter a contract, for instance, or mm-hmm. other language of yep. taking on debt. So I mm-hmm. suppose it it helps to um, oh, displace the the priority of the consumer's choice or the, the worker's choice. Yeah, the choice. priority
1: of... Yeah, sure. You know, to the extent that, I mean, you don't need specific language of election to do that. You can talk about all different... Yeah, just talk about God's grace, uh, any any number of variety of different ways that would suggest that, yeah, you basically don't save yourself. So, yeah, if election is making that point, good. <laughs> but, uh, but election, as you know, yeah, historically, it does suggest that, I mean, it's very easy to assume that, I mean, by using the term elect, that not everybody is so elect. And then that leads to certain Uh, moralizing consequences, you know, why are you elect rather than other people, what about your life displays your election, things like that, even if you weren't anxious about whether you were elect or not, it might still have some consequences that wouldn't be that great from my point of view, but that's probably not obvious in this particular lecture, probably in later lectures it will become clearer, but thanks for that. Yeah, I mean, the theological part here, there are theological bits here, but they're they're going to be added to, and there'll be a much fuller picture of the, the theological viewpoint that's being assumed here across the lectures. So I'm not giving everything away here. I'm letting you anticipate what I'm going to say later.
2: Well, um, thank you very much for... Um, you've given us a very comprehensive and very gloomy view of the... Yes, it's very gloomy. ...rather ghastly, ghastly world in which Gascally. we live. And um, I just wonder if we can do something about it while we're here so we can have a better life rather than depending on what might come in the afterlife. And I just wonder whether we might consider not just uh, analyzing the world as it runs, but maybe consider changing it.
1: And um, maybe there's a scope for a spot of revolution somewhere? Yes. No, I'm in favor of that. No, this is... Uh, I mean, I did talk about heaven here. Yeah, I talked about the Eschaton. But no, I'm not assuming that you're going to have to defer... Uh, your hopes until after death or the end of the world or something like that. Uh, And that will become clearer, I think, in later uh, lectures. No, grace is at work right now with uh, uh, enabling the capacity for revolutionary change. I mean, that's pretty much what I said now, but it will become much more evident later. So, no, this is not, you know, sort of pie-in-the-sky hopes. You know, the world is terrible, nothing to be done about it. You know, pin your hopes on the afterlife. That's not the view that I'm putting forward here. Um, although I, I agree that this particular lecture might suggest something like that because it is so gloomy.
4: Hi. this I think it's a question about uh, to make sure I'm hear, I'm hearing some things I thought I heard in your lecture correctly. It might also be a question that's asking for... Is this what you're going to say in, a, in the next following lectures? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: There could be an, a surprising twist and turn. <laughs> you can't prospectively know what I will say in the next lecture. But go ahead.
4: Um, so I was thinking about how the first half, uh, mostly on analyzing the uh, economics of our current situation, and then the second half um, fitted together. And obviously the, the tie between how the, the past relates to us yep. um, was quite clear. But also I was thinking that another pivot seemed to be um, Christ as and his work of atonement in a fairly anselmian way and it was very brief but i was wondering is that something that you're hoping to redevelop in light of like redo it so not just follow anselm but redo well, not, it in I'm light not really of really
1: following anselm i mean no. there is talk about i didn't i didn't think so death, but it just sounded like no, there was the, an easy the connection the lectures are actually not going to go that direction okay um I mean, I have written about the atonement before. It is not a particularly Anselmian, Anselmian position. But here I was just kind of playing with uh, a series of Christian metaphors having to do with conversion and baptism things like that it, to make clear that you're talking about some... I mean, yeah, debt is obviously relevant since I was just earlier talking about debt. But the main point has to do with some kind of... Um, uh, you know, radically disjunctive transformation. So, you know, you can use the language of debt and debt release, debt slavery, uh, freedom from from debt, forgiveness of debt, to make that point. But, I mean, the images that I'm actually favoring are ones having to do with death and rebirth, that you go through death in order to be reborn. Um, But, yeah, I'm also, uh, you know, in the the longer manuscript from which this comes, uh, you know, I'm trying to, Avoid uh, certain Christian uses of debt language after baptism, Uh, you know, so that you remain indebted to God and you're trying to prove your worth and you're, uh, you know, trying to do what you're supposed to do given the fact that you've been saved by Christ and that that sets up a kind of, uh, if you want, debt servicing uh, practice uh, after the fact. Yeah.
4: Right. So, not questioning the current economic problem, but actually, right.
1: You're using exactly the same right. terms, and it's very easy just to think, well, yeah, uh, you know, you owe a lot to Christ because of what has been done for you. You have an obligation to act on what's been given to you. You need to perform well, and you need to pay very close attention to how well you're performing, uh, because that's the only way, say, you know, in very traditional terms, you're going to get into heaven. And that's very common in Christianity. I don't talk that way all the time, but you know, I think that's a mistake, and it, for theological reasons, it's a mistake uh, because of, you know, I have a different understanding of grace basically than that one that underlies that way of looking at things. But also because that <coughs> uh, Christian way of looking at things does have the potential, and probably historically did, play into. Uh, you know, transmuted into forms of uh, government and political economy that came later. I mean, that's basically Foucault's argument, so I'm kind of interacting with him implicitly throughout the whole thing. Thanks.